welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, they don't get too much bigger than this, folks. Cedric Bixler Zavala of the legendary, legendary, that's not being overdramatic with this, bands Mars Volta at the drive-in. And most recently, perhaps the most politically significant punk band ever. Well, maybe L'Estranger in Canada. They did produce two MPs, but this is a big one. Foss. Yes, that's right. There is a connection between Beto O'Rourke, who is right now running against Ted Cruz and at the drive-in. And anyone that listens to the show knows that that's the kind of shit that just makes my day. But all of that will be up here in a second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email, turnoutapunk at gmail, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. There is a Facebook page run by my brother, Tristan Abraham, and you can find him there. Send him a message. He books a lot of guests. Didn't book this one. This one's on me. I booked this one myself. So thank you, Tristan, every other week. But this week, I deserve a little bit of the credit here. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, also, there is a Turn Out a Punk Instagram page, a Tumblr page, you know, what have you. So find out what's going on on all those places. You can hear from my voice right here that it is a little shot. It's a lethal combination of fucked up playing a show over or two shows over the weekend in Victoria. Then I came back and it was my birthday and Dinosaur Jr. played a show and I did a live podcast with them. That'll be coming up here in the future. Don't worry. It, it, Nothing to get too excited about. It's Dinosaur Jr., so it's like pulling teeth doing an interview, especially in a live setting. But it was a lot of fun. And then I went out and sang with them and uh, blew up my voice. So my voice is a little shot. So I apologize for the way I sound to you right now. But if you would like to support me in my recovery from illness and voice shotness, the best way of doing that is by telling all your friends about this podcast. Why that will help, I don't know. You can also, uh, on your platform podcast of choice, your uh, platforms for podcasts that you, of choice, you can uh, subscribe to this thing, rate it, write a review, tell all your friends, let everyone know. That's what we do around here. Okay. Speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the loving, kind support of my good friends at Vans. They let me book whoever I want and uh, just, you know, make sure that I don't do this thing out of my own pocket, which is very much appreciated. So thank you, Vans, for supporting this thing, you know, for, for a while now. You know, a while. And and always, no complaints about any guests. Ooh, feeling a little under the weather. But you know what? I couldn't let that stop me from bringing you this episode. This is a doozy of an episode. This is someone I've wanted to talk to forever for this show. Uh, anyone who's a fan of Cedric knows that got to be, you know, one of the top front people to ever come out of punk rock. If you've ever gotten a chance to see any of his projects live, you know that he's uh, kinetic. And, you know, as a front person, it's really inspiring to me. And they were a huge, huge, huge influence when I got to see him for that first time at that Gilman show. That, like, that set the the tone for me on what you have to do when you're in a band. It doesn't matter where you're playing on that bill. It doesn't matter who in the crowd knows you. You go out there and you 
leave it all out on the stage. And that's what they did the first time I saw him. And I've been a fan kind of ever since. So this has been a long time coming. I've never had a chance to do this with him. I've never, never kind of subjected him this level of uh, punishment that one is subjected to on Turned Out of Punk. So this is a good one. There's so much in this. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's good. It's rich. It's rich. Anyway, I'm not going to blather on anymore. I want you all to just sit back, relax, and enjoy Cedric Blixer Zavala on Turned Out a Punk. Cedric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I was just telling you off air that you are, without a doubt, one of the best to ever do it when it comes to being a front person and uh, a huge inspiration on me. And to, to finally get to sit down and punish you like this is something <laughs> I've wanted to do for a long time. <laughs> Good. Great. Then let's, let's do it. And thank you for those kind words. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, uh, before we get to the true punishment, I got to start them off the way I start them all off, which is Cedric, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yes, it was um, it was probably through through skateboarding, and I would hang out at our um, local skate shop that was called Locals Only at the time, and the skate section was run by an older gentleman who had a yes tattoo <laughs> on his arm, and uh, but he always was really cool to me, and I would always see the flyers come by and be put there, and there was these benefits happening for the homeless in El Paso, and Every band's logo was on there, and that's the first time I re- really saw it up front. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, like, benefit for the homeless, and it's happening here at this, like, little house or whatever. And some of the names just, like, bugged me out. We had a band called Zombie Chess Cold and uh, <laughs> Phantasmagoria and uh, Twisted Thought. And so that's kind of, like, my introduction was through, through skateboarding and then also through um, Channel 19 USA had the TV show called Night Flight. Yeah. So Night Flight showed um, uh, another state of mind. So that was my real, real introduction because my parents watched that with me and they were like, you want to do this? (laughs) (laughs) They're getting paid in pennies. Why would you want to go live that way? And I all I said to my aunt was, I don't know why I just this is this is it. This is perfect. You know? Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. So what were the first bands that kind of took like what were the first records you remember buying even or hearing uh let me see uh there were always um hand-me-down tapes from friends so mm-hmm. um there was like the pistols were there right away and um dead kennedys i think frankenchrist would be my first real like my own sort of a buy or purchase yeah. yeah and i was expecting it to be really really fast and it wasn't it wasn't at all yeah and I've, I've had this discussion with people's how like that was like them like not sounding like them anymore but i have so much uh, affection for that record and it really kind of shaped the way i am now with my view of punk now and you know songs like uh i don't know i'm working at my job that's a strange song yeah, yeah. you know and, and that record is strange and then um yes yeah, so, so that one and then mostly local stuff that was happening which was like uh, a band called Uglor, and uh, I remember I just knew the band name because Uglor's name of a bad guy from Space Ghost. So oh I inst- yeah, yeah. I instantly thought that's cool. They're called Uglor, and then I went to um, 
I went to a ditch called Three Fountains that we all hung out at and skated at, and um, Uglor was playing by chance, and they had a generator, and um, someone even filmed it, so I actually have proof of my first punk show. I'm, I'm in there trying to slam dance, and um, so it was, it, was, it was a combination of like Dead Kennedys and Uglor, and then as, as the years went on, more sort of skate rock because of the Thrasher videos, so like Tales of Terror, Screaming Sirens, that kind of stuff. Before we get into Uglor, um, just back to the Dead Kennedys, it's amazing, like, I guess it's the name, but I had the exact same experience when I finally heard the Dead Kennedys. It was a lot more, and they are a lot more musical than that name would ever lead you to believe at first kind of blush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just instantly thought, oh, this is this has some surf sound to it. Yeah, I yeah. Instantly loved it. Instantly loved it. Yeah, they, they could all play. Like, they're not, you know, like, not to say that, other bands couldn't play but like you could tell that these guys could all be playing different genres if the task required yeah that's for sure they were they were they ripped they really ripped and so did so did jello too you know yeah. he was uh he was you could just tell like there was some sort of theater or mime background in the way he performed and then of course the intelligence and the spitfire rapid intelligence of his lyrics were just mm -hmm. always mind-boggling to me like and then i would see him on what is it, Oprah, um, and him and Ice-T <laughs> battling against, you know, oh, yeah. the, uh, the PMRC. That, that's how old I am. <laughs> mm. No, they're they're really like, you know, they were a band that, I, I don't know if they put themselves out there, but they really did get out there. Maybe a large part do that PMRC case. But, yeah, like they were very mainstream. And once again, I think that name also might have a little something to do with it. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Like a, my, par my parents freaked out a little bit seeing that, you know. I think their worry was if I ever came home and they saw, like, the Megadeth or the Slayer, they just knew those that music by logo. Yeah. So it looked yeah. really crazy. But then I came home with something even, like, more offensive, which was dead, <laughs> dead Kennedy, you know. My parents were like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that is, that is the line. That is really the line that you cross at that point with the Dead Kennedys t-shirt. It is, it is, because, you know, the thing they were worried about was kind of more Dungeons and Dragons, and this one was like, oh, he's getting some knowledge here. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Like, it, it's, you know, th that's the difference, I guess, between metal and punk, ultimately, is like one's singing about fantasy, and one's presenting the reality. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Did Uglord ever record, other than this videotape? They did. They have, uh, they have some... I guess you'd call them just old demo cassettes, really. And they, they, they put it out there a lot. Um, a, a couple of them have passed away recently. And by the time uh, I had gone to, like, the seen them the second time around, one of them had shot the other person. Wow. So, so like, the guitar player was in a wheelchair playing. And um, one of the things that really struck me when I first saw them was the drummer had dreadlocks. But I could tell if I looked closely that, he had shaved his head and then super glued the dreadlocks back on. So that always, like, it was an extra. He was, like, so extra about it. He was yeah. grand. And I just remember, like, oh, I love that. That's, that's, that's what I want to do. <laughs> this band sounds amazing. What was their vibe musically? Like The Accused. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Very, very thrash. <laughs> um, so where did you... Actually, sorry, it's amazing how little of these bands, like, you know, once again, you were posting all these wicked photos of yourself in some of these early bands and some other bands that you hung out with on Instagram, but how few of these bands got any sort of documentation, I guess, outside of cassettes. Yeah, it's it's really sad that not, not a lot of them even had the idea of 
getting in a van and touring. Mm-hmm. I mean, Las Cruces was as far as they went, and that's only 45 minutes outside of El Paso. And a lot of them didn't even think of going to go play Juarez, mm-hmm. which blows my mind. So, yeah. What were what were the uh, like? What were some of the other bands in that scene at that time like uh, playing around of the Nuglord? Well, let's see. Our our venue at the time, the first venue that we had that was that catered to punk music was, I believe, called the Rat Skeller. Okay. And so that would have that would that would do shows for like the Ramones or Sam Hain. So that's like way before my time. <laughs> and by the time I start going to shows, we have a venue called Sound Seas, which is run by this guy named Mike Jennings, who's just sort of kind of, he looks like Gibby Haynes and he's, <laughs> he's a little out there and he performs as well. And um, Mike brings like Op Ivy to El Paso and Youth of Today and um, Suicidal and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's when I'm like starting to see the flyers. I never make it to Sound Seas. Sound Seas folds up and so by the time I start going to shows, I'm going to shows much based on the second reunion of our local heroes, the Rhythm Pigs, who were the only band to get out of El Paso and tour Europe. So their bass player, Ed Ivey, starts throwing shows, kind of like opening the door for the younger generation. So that's when like Omar and Jim Ward, we all come in because Ed Ivey's uh, throwing shows for us. So. They're, they're, once again, a real underrated band. And also, they had, didn't they have like a flexi in Thrasher? Yeah, they had a Flexi and Thrasher, and they have three records, I believe, and they were on Mortem at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which is really funny because then years later, uh, Omar uh, partnering up with Sonny K from GSL would go to all the Mortem meetings, you know, where they would have <laughs> big, like, anti-major label discussions, you know. And I remember, I remember one of those times. Sorry to ramble on and get sidetracked, but don't please. Was, that's what the show's about. Okay, so there's there's a, at the time Omar's a silent partner for GSL and Sunny K is sort of the main visible person for it and he's doing everything like the Locust and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but Mars Volta's on there too, so they're going to Mortem having these these big sort of in label house meetings and one of the subjects is major labels and everyone's against it, everyone and. Up come these two people. They get up, step up to the mic. You know, it's kind of like a panel discussion, and it's uh, it's Lux and and Poison Ivy from the Cramps. Awesome. And they're the first ones to like give Omar and Sunny props. Like, yo, we've been on major labels for most of our lives. You know, it's not all that shitty, but we understand why you think it's shitty. But you know, we can't like not be like selling people's stuff because they're affiliated, or we can't take the Gilman approach and not let them play because of the affiliation. I just always thought that is so cool. And years later, we, we do like a festival in Italy and uh, we're at the same hotel as, as the cramps and they look over at us and they like, they sort of give us that nod, like, Hey, how's it going? And then I go and watch them later and they proceed to just demolish the stage. They were so, so amazing. I don't know how many beer, beer, uh, uh, you know, little uh, canisters of beers that poison Ivy took to the head and to the guitar while they were playing and she didn't even give a fuck. It was so yeah. great. And I all I could think of was like, you guys stood up for my friends and that's so cool, you know? It's like, what an amazing band and what an incredible history they had. Like, you know, from playing like Max's Kansas City's at the start of it to like being on 90210. <laughs> I don't know about 90210. I gotta look that up. 
Oh, they they were on 902. No, they played on an episode where they played at the Peach Pit after dark. And oh, it, it is truly one of the more surreal TV punk appearances, I think, of all time. I love that kind of stuff. Same oh. here. Same <laughs> here. Well, you're responsible for a few of them, too. Like, imagine how many minds you guys blew just appearing on TV when someone had never seen anything like that before. <laughs> I, I get some people that are um, <clears throat> a little younger than me that ha- come up to me and tell me that. Like, it, like some people cite, like, uh, the Jules Holland show that we did with mm-hmm. at the drive-in. Because... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Omar like dropped his guitar, so it went out of tune. And from the and that was the first time, you know, our, our roadie who was like a professional roadie now, but back then he was barely figuring it out. He, yeah. he he always called working with us Vietnam because it's like he he would always send Omar into battle with with guns that didn't have full bullets, and that's <laughs> that's that's exactly what the Jules Holland show was like. Our backup guitar didn't have enough strings put on it yet. He dropped his guitar, totally went out of tune. Mid-song, he's just dancing, throw, and I'm throwing chairs and shit. And then afterwards, Robbie Williams comes up and wants to hang out. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know, like, it seemed like you guys were a band that, you know, and this, I got, like, once again, we're jumping way ahead, but, you know, <laughs> we're kind of, like, forced to figure it out as you went. Like, there was really no model that you guys are kind of following that came before you on how you were going to handle success yeah (laughs) um but jumping way back in time again uh okay so when rhythm pigs were they kind of like the band or were they already kind of past the i guess they're you know the second reunion right they're past their kind of prime era but they went for consistently right until the 90s right yeah they did so yeah so i'm sort of like second generation like young kid being influenced by uh our our older statesman our elder statesman which is rhythm pig so so ed ivy the bass player he's using his own money and getting venues to have these bands come in you know everything from like scream or christ on a crutch or all and he's he's bringing them into town and that's causing us to have a a, a life on friday night which is great <laughs> <laughs> he, he had to he had to deal with a lot of young people who were just sort of like treating him like he was part of the problem, even though he was um, making everything happen for El Paso at the time. And um, I, I can't thank that guy enough. He really, really, really opened our minds to a lot of different music and then like put up with the behavior that he had already gone through when he was younger and sort of just let us be, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you kind of need someone who's, you know, a responsible adult who can rent the spaces and can get the PAs organized or, or at least teach you how to do that. Yeah, they were they they will always be an inspiration that way. I had no idea that you needed to call a, a local PA company, and then you had to talk them down off the ledge because you were going <laughs> to let them know that we weren't going to destroy the PA or the mics. You know, I mean, and then you, the other thing that was really inspiring is that we heard the rumor was that first time they got to Europe, they were so excited they jumped out of their van, they went into the venue, they left the van running and open. And when they came outside, everything was gone. And oh. so they had to stay in Europe playing kind of like bar gigs and regular gigs as Rhythm Pigs just to make money to get one guy to go home and then the next guy and then the next guy. And so that was always my introduction of like, whoa, you you, you really got to keep your wits about you. And it happened to them, you know. That's the nightmare European tour, like the nightmare. <laughs> I mean, yeah, think tour. about 1985. Ah! Like, being out there or 86 like it's it's still unpaved 
you know, it's just like yeah. another state of mind, unpaved roads, really. <laughs> yeah, no, def- absolutely. Especially like, you know, even hear stories about Youth of Today going over a few years later and how it was still like an adjustment for them. But I can only imagine at that point, especially, you know, not that the Rhythm Pigs aren't a legendary band, but they're not, you know, I can't imagine popular enough to sustain a multi-month European tour. No, no, <laughs> no. Yeah. And hopefully people understand when I say uh, unpaved rows, I, I mean that musically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, and it, it just like in terms of like, like, you know, North America, like North America, sorry, uh, uh, America and, and Canada, too, had unpaved roads when it came to touring until, you know, DOA and Black Flag really kind of went out there. And it takes bands kind of going over there and giving us these cautionary tales like having to send members of the band home one by one. Yeah. That so we can pave those roads together. <laughs> and make sure it doesn't happen again yes i mean all those people going over there are the reason why now you can even hit germany and there are even vegan options you mm-hmm. know like that's what's crazy is like the footwork that was laid before you makes it so that it's somewhat comfortable now because in the states you know most promoters for up-and-coming bands are like i made some spaghetti or here's some top ramen go up and play i don't have anything to- <laughs> i don't have a place for you to stay i don't have you know no one's gonna watch you go do it you know, and, and in Europe, it's different because people like youth of today and anybody else that was touring from over here went over there and did it. Yeah, like it's amazing when you look at the 90s and just how many bands were just, you know, like did bands like Slapshot and Battery ever play North America or were they just kind of constantly in Europe at that point? Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> bands were like, oh, this is a much sweeter deal over here. Let's just, <laughs> let's just tour over here. I mean, till this day. Yeah. You can you can you can go see any of that stuff. And, okay, I'll put it this way: to this day, if I wanted to go see anything off the cassette comp called New York Hardcore the way it is, <laughs> I'll, I can see it in Germany. <laughs> yep, or or a, a German uh, local reproduction of said band. That's true. Very very true. They're so obsessed with that; it always blows my mind. It's awesome when you go to places and like even in Japan, you know, you see it like these bands that are just like note perfect kind of tributes to a certain era or time and and i guess like it happens like there are bands i can think of in canada right now that are note perfect tributes to japanese hardcore of a certain era but it's amazing how like dialed in it can get in punk rock yeah for sure do you do you know um sin eater sin eater no i think they were from uh, i want to say not not calgary um uh, Did so they do a split with Christy Front Drive? Maybe they 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 might have, and that, that that's a band that um, I believe we met with when I was doing Foss with Beto. So yeah, I would do shows for them in El Paso, and they would do shows for us up around there. I can't remember the smaller places we played in Canada, but wow, so you guys toured all the way up here? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Oh, yeah. In fact, I don't I don't want to. There is such a major story I have, and I can't really tell it because because Beto's running for Senate. Yes, yeah, I will. We will. We will preserve the future of our world in favor of keeping the story where it is for now. Um, but I, I. But I'll put it this way: it's the spirit of this incident that made me apply it to everything I was doing musically and just be fearless about it. So, and there were so many other incidents that I can talk about that shaped the way I approach the tenacity of, of being in an unknown band. So, and that's because of Beto. 
Well, like, before we get to that, I want to get back to like, when did you first kind of start playing music, right? Because you're a drummer on the on the Foss record, right? Yeah, I played drums and um, it was like, uh, I guess like 14 or 15, I start playing shows with my, my buddies. Like one of my first bands is called uh, Distorted Silence. Awesome name. <laughs> and uh, so we start going to like um, the zoo or Western Playland, which is our amusement park. And at the end of the school year, they would let all the bands from every high school have a show. So um, I would start really seeing the local bands that I was seeing and the flyers that I that I couldn't go see because I was still too young. So I started finally seeing them at these situations. So I'm 14 or 15. I'm, I'm singing for... Um, distorted silence and um, our first gig is in front of the monkeys at the zoo for like <laughs> for like our guitar club at school and then um, some of the older bands who I idolized the they watch us play and then they sort of poach me and I quit my band and start singing for a band called Phantasmagoria so Phantasmagoria which I didn't know at the time were uh, rivals with Uglor so when I joined the band, I'm like, oh, my God, Uglor, you guys, da, da, da. And they're like, fuck those guys. <laughs> you know, so the band I joined, Phantasmagoria, is predominantly, it, well, yeah, it's predominantly like Chicano or, you know, Mexican kids that are from the projects. The projects are called Jackie's. And somehow the owner of Jackie's lets this band in particular practice in the main office. <laughs> <laughs> and And they have already have a reputation of kind of like being like the warriors and just kind of being like the band that steals your equipment. So I joined this band and I'm like, okay, so this is how you guys roll. All right. And everyone kind of hated them for that. But at the same time, everyone was in fear of them. And I'm like this 15 year old kid who got poached by them and I start singing for them. And it's one of the greatest experiences of my life. I think. <laughs> what was your first band's kind of sound like distorted silence? Uh, Distorted Silence, we did a lot of covers, so like Soup Kitchen Celebrity by MDC mm -hmm. and um, uh, Now I Want to Be Your Dog. I wanted to do a lot of Misfits covers, which is why I joined Phantasmagoria, because they were all about that. And um, the, my band, uh, Distorted Silence, they were like, you have to listen to this band, The Stooges. And I, at the time, I was like, I don't like this song. It's too slow. You know, and then, you know, it's so funny because that's like what my kids sing now and then us having work with them later. Um, but it just sounds like skate punk, really, like the stupids or something. Yeah, well, it, that's the thing is like, you know, at the time, when you, especially if you're hearing bands that are like blistering fast or Earth AD or something, the Stooges sound like like <laughs> sluggish by comparison. And it's only they sound like classic rock. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And I guess that would have been almost like at that time, even that's. That is almost classic rock date wise compared to yeah. what was happening at the time. So not that I no disrespect to the Stooges, the greatest band of all time. But right. You know, right. If I'm honest with myself, I kind of felt the same way. I think the first time I heard them, even more yeah. disappointed than when I first heard the dead Kennedys. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, when you kind of joined this new band and it, what was like the situation like playing local shows then if people around you were kind of fearful, as you say, also respectful, but like there was that kind of fear around the band. Oh, there was fights. There was going to, there was always like, we got to split or everyone's going to like, we all got to like get together and fight this other band or get together and deny that we stole their amp <laughs> to their face. <laughs> and so, and like a lot of these bands that we had to do that with, 
they knew me as like the little enthusiastic kid that wouldn't shut up. And all of a sudden I joined that band. So they're like conf- conflicted calling us out and stuff, but there was always just like tension and stuff. And, um, and, and then we were really trying to focus on writing our own music as well and not be Phantasmagoria that was known for only Misfits covers. <laughs> so, so we had a lot of cool shows. We, we, um, God, I think one of the most memorable ones was we opened for Scream, but and it was Scream, Phantasmagoria, and Christ on a Christ on Parade or Christ on a Crutch, I believe. Christ on a Crutch. Oh, awesome! And so uh, Scream cancels because their drummer went to join some other band, of <laughs> which I let, which you know later becomes Nirvana. And um, but it, it was it was a fantastic show with Christ on a Crutch just killed it. And our venue was called Campus Queen, which is a, a burger joint, but where you go eat in the back is an open ceiling patio. So you're outside, and it's just great. A lot of fun. Would you? This this is like a ridiculous question to ask, maybe. But do you remember if Nate from the Foo Fighters was playing bass in Christ on a Crutch on that tour? I should remember that, and I don't remember him being in that band. And I've I, seen him a couple times, and I should have asked that. He played, he played in a lineup, and I don't know if it was at a later lineup or what era of the band it would have been, but that would have been cool if the entire rhythm section, well, I guess not really <laughs> the rhythm section, but you know the, the singer of the Foo Fighters and the bass player were on together way back when. <laughs> right. It's a, it really is a small world, man. It, it it's, really <laughs> and it's all connected by punk, which is the most <laughs> insane thing. Yeah. Because um, actually, funny, the week before you're on the show, uh, Shauna from War on Women is on the show, and I had no idea about the label connection between War on Women and, and of course, Foss as well. Right. Yeah. It's all, it's a very small interconnected web in punk rock. Yes, it is. Yeah. Brooks is, is, grew up in El Paso, and uh, Brooks was, it played trumpet in one of the bands I was in for a little while. That's awesome. So I guess, like, you know, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but like, what was it like? what were you like as a front person really early on? Like, did you always have that energy and like that kind of like kinetic kind of expression or were you trying different things at first? I, I think I always had that sort of like uh, that cheerleader thing about me, even from the beginning, which is why all those, you know, those guys were about five years older than I was. So, and I don't think they ever saw someone <laughs> that was like that. Yeah. And so they were like, we need him. He's a good cheerleader. Cause I was a horrible, horrible singer. So they really had to shape me in that department, but they were always stoked that I could get um, people to laugh or just to watch. You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Well, that's the art. Yeah, exactly. I think that was uh, that's always been with me. I even have a I have a scar on my right arm because when my parents were home, I'd always blast music, and we had slippery tiles, so I was. I was just a little one man pit before my parents came <laughs> home. And one of the times I, I slipped and my arm fell into, into the glass. And when I pulled it back, the size of a mouth size gash Oof. was on my wrist. So I guess I was always practicing in my room or in the front den on, you know, just trying to whip up some sort of frenzy mm-hmm. <laughs> that's always been there with me. <laughs> so, and what were your vocal style like? What was your vocal style like, I should say, at the very beginning? Like, very, you... very shouty and, and also trying to imitate Danzig. I was going to say, was... were you going for a Danzig kind of feel? Big time, big time. I mean, I dressed like that. You know, I, everyone had a, everyone I hung out with was wore like um, the big, uh, what do you call it? Sweatbands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you just, yeah, you see Erie Vaughn and you see all that stuff and yeah. you're like, I want to look like that. That's so cool. 
you know. <laughs> they they honestly Danzig, if nothing else, is a master of aesthetics. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He knows like how to how to sell a band. Like if in a different world, he would be packaging uh, pop groups for mass consumption. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. He, yeah, he's easy to make fun of, but there's just way too much respect there to absolutely uh, to, to to throw his way. I mean, that stuff. I mean, touring around in a in a van that was decorated with Spider-Man, you know, and then, sh- and then some of them wearing like, like legit Star Trek gear on stage. And, you know, like that, that shit was, that really is ahead of the time. You yeah. Know? I mean, obviously the cramps were the real ghouls, but, and I'm not saying the misfits weren't, but like, that's great that they kept up that tradition because somehow it, it seemed like everyone wanted to forget about like, how cool Alice Cooper was and that, how mm-hmm. that was really subversive back then. So I always saw that as an extension of Alice Cooper. It's almost like the, the, the cramps are too real and the misfits found a way <laughs> to like make it accessible enough to, to sell it to, to normals, a little more it's, normal people. Yeah. Well, it's that pop side of them. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Like it sounds like the, he, he can write a song. Like there are some really catchy songs in that Seriously. catalog. Like Spook City USA, I can play that for my kids and they they get it. On and then obviously that's the only lyric in the yes. song. Yes. But but you know, it sounds like it could have been the um theme music for the Griswold family. Yeah. That's, that's what that song reminds me of. So I'm like, that's they they know what the, he he knows what he's been doing, so it's great. I find when you sing along with to the misfits with your kids, it's a, it's mumble versus sing along full blast chorus. <laughs> That's exactly right. I never had the lyric sheet until <laughs> until I w- I wasn't into them, and then it kind of like made me get back into them because I'm like, "That's what he's saying." <laughs> Holy shit! That's in- that's intense. Yeah, that, I guess we were talking about the reality of of punk rock. Like, there's a uh, some dark twisted fantasies of even Kanye <laughs> couldn't touch. Uh, <laughs> um. Uh, so back to kind of playing music. So did you guys record in this band, in this, in this incarnation of the band? We did. And I don't, I don't know where any of that stuff is. Oh man. Well, that'd be awesome to hear that. Yeah. There was always moments where we were trying to, we were just trying to be different and do something interesting, you know? So we were definitely of that 90s ilk trying to throw like reggae or funk into the mix you know because that was really fucking popular and i (laughs) think i think after a while i could see that with all the other bands like everyone wanted to be jane's addiction or the red hots yeah and and for a while there we have a thing in texas they call the texas funk scene so it's like tim kerr's other band like bad mother goose yeah yeah, and all these other ones that aren't really known, like Sprawl was the main big one. If Sprawl came into town, it was just like everyone showed up and it was a party. And they were really good, like, funk music. But like I say, it's it's very much derivative of what was happening as far as Flea and then Jane's Addiction. So at the same time that I'm singing for Phantasmagoria, I um, start hanging around with this other band called Three Blind Bats. And Three Blind Bats are essentially the house band for, like, a gang um, and the gang is patterned after like um, the Los Angeles Death Squad, mm-hmm. but ours is the Northeast Death Squad. So it's primarily like Italian and Mexican kids who look like the misfits and, you know, unfortunately carry guns and knives and stuff like that. And a- a- as a young person, um, 
you know, the, the confusion of hormones, which you can only really recognize years later, like yes. the whole, what the classic phrase, you know, I don't know what I want, but I want it now. That's where my head was at. And I joined this band called three blind bats and, um, they were brothers and they look like the misfits and their songs were rad. Now that music does exist and I'm in the middle of trying to get some of that. So, Oh, that'd be odd. Oh, <laughs> and I, I play bass for that band and that was really, just really cool. Very, very cramps, very misfits. Um, Almost like uh, their their biggest influence I remember at the time was a band called Sperm Birds from Germany. Oh wow, that's a, like yeah. what an obscure band to be into too. I know, I know, I had no idea. And then years later, when at the drive-in starts getting some heat behind it, I get to meet the singer of the Sperm Birds at a German gig, and I'm like, you have no idea, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I I love when that happens, you know. Like I'm like, God, you have no idea how much your soundtrack meant to me. But um, well, especially because so yeah. that guy probably had no idea that was coming, right? Like, <laughs> it, yeah, I think he was working at the club. I think that's <laughs> awesome. Well, I, was there like a like a sort of crate digger kind of scene when it comes to punk music? Because once again, that is an obscure reference for a band to have at that time. When like you know pre-internet, like to stumble upon that record, you got to kind of be out there digging it or at least reading Max from Rock and Roll. Right. I don't think a lot of us had MRR back then. Um, we just had sort of the older, the older people that came before us. Yeah. So there were there was like a couple like skinhead bands in El Paso and a, and a couple of straight edge bands at the time. And this is more. It's not so much like the New York hardcore style. It's like they're still like early Beastie Boys kind of like mm-hmm. punk. Mm-hmm. So, um, so a lot of those older bands would just hand us the cassettes and stuff. So when I joined um, Phantasmagoria. The, I, I call it's easier for me to describe them as the projects band, um, <laughs> and which is I, I it's one of my most you know treasured badges badges of honor. But um, they had a cassette of a band called Kraut. Yeah, from New York. And, yes, exactly. And the song that really stuck out was "You're All Twisted." So between that and watching like Friday nights with David Sanborn and him putting all that weirdo shit on on a Friday night. Yeah, or not Friday night. I think it was just called Night Music. Excuse me, Night Music. So night music, Channel 19 USA as well with Night Flight and all that shit. And then I had a Kraut cassette and I just joined that band. I was set. I was like, this is fucking cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hear this band, like the Kraut influence alone and then all the other things you're saying you guys are pouring in there. It's also, it's funny, I guess, before that Texas kind of, the funk scene that you're describing, like that tradition of incorporating funk into to punk music, I guess like the big boys deserve the credit for that in America for the, or at least in that part of America outside of New York. Right. For sure. That's yep. That's exactly right. I'm always so, so proud to say Texas and punk in the same breath, because mm-hmm. to me, things like scratch acid, big boys, uh, the butthole surfers, it always it's always like a badge of honor again, like to be like, yep, the real weirdo fucking shit came from Texas. Yeah, <laughs> but like in a, such an amazing way, like bands like Culture Side and Really Red and and you guys, like it's just like the an Iron Age and like just like the the sounds that have come out of that state. Obviously, a massive state geographically, but still, it's just like you know, it, it's like you said, New York hardcore. You can kind of pinpoint that genre in a th- in a certain space, but you can't do that with Texas hardcore. Yeah, it's all over the map. It's it really all over the map. Is. Yeah, and, and like, you know, butthole surfers, like just like weird outliers that went incredible heights with the, the strange music they were playing. 
That's right. Yeah. I mean, incredible. <laughs> incredible. Have you seen that video where Gibby's firing the shotgun above everyone's head at Lollapalooza? Yes. I thought that was a Reading Festival. And he has oh, like the. Reading? Okay. Maybe it's Reading. Sorry. It's, it's probably, it's probably, there's probably footage <laughs> yeah. of yours too. The one I've seen is like time stamped. And um, so they're playing stuff off of like uh, locust abortion technician and all that, that kind of stuff. But you can kind of tell they haven't made the record with John Paul Jones yet. But yeah. About to. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of a great era right there watching mm-hmm. all that. And then it's really great to to see that uh, their drummer started a record label and that record label, you know, gives us like Trail of Dead and shit like that. So yeah. he was always in, in tune with that. And, you know, um, I even remember we have we, at the drive-in had a drummer named Ryan Sawyer. And um, Ryan Sawyer used to tell me that he used to watch a uh, public access TV show with Gibby's dad as yeah. the host. And uh, he would bring it up to his teacher, and his te- uh, his teacher was uh, Gibby's mom, I believe. And, you know, Gibby's mom, when she would hear anything related to, <laughs> to Gibby's music, she would be like, we don't say those words out loud in this class. <laughs> uh, um, but you brought up Trans Syndicate Records there, and that's, once again, like, what a cool label, right? Like, they put up Rocky Erickson Records, they put out, like... Of course, Annual Knows by the Trail of the Dead, too, but like Cherubs, all that Cherub stuff they put out. Yep, Cherubs was always like an undeniable group. And there was there was another band that always really made made headlines called Ed Hall. Oh, and, uh, okay. The name sounds familiar. They're just they were bizarre. And um they actually sort of technically, even though they didn't know it, they supported Phantasmagoria because we would go see them. And in the middle of their set, they would start giving their equipment to the audience. So we were like, we get symbols. We have these symbols. <laughs> you know, they put on a hell of a show. <laughs> Patrons of the arts. Yes. <laughs> and then also, you know, the, the other thing with when I, when I joined Three Blind Bats, part of it for me was they had an in-house designer by way of their singer. So mm. naturally what I didn't even recognize in description was that they had their logo down already and to me it was like it's like black flag had that logo so you have the artwork they had the really amazing graffiti they would teach me how to do that graffiti and our our graffiti style was what i called coffin banging it was half cholo half punk rock and goth and you know you would see all the other big gang names tagged everywhere but Ours really stood out. We had like upside down sort of like dead skeleton people hanging like bats. Let's say three black, you know, three BB with X's in the B. And it just was like the uh, uh, a super exaggerated version of all the cholo handwriting. And so that to me was part of the attraction of joining that band was the aesthetic was so set. And it was just perfect for me. And that's what really attracted to me. And then they had a cassette of their music and um uh, their drummer didn't know how to use the bass drum pedal, so he would he would balance himself on his knee and just play the hi hat and <laughs> snare. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and I always think he was amazing for doing that. Yeah, like I haven't figured it out, but I don't give a fuck. That's not going to stop me. <laughs> well, that's like that's just like the true, you know, you know, like energy of what's behind this music, where it's like, you know, figure out the technical aspects first, but get that that frustration and that anger committed. To, to the world first and foremost. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to do this reissue, like with full liner notes in a book, because like <laughs> I, I can't wait to, I just need to see, I've seen the photos. And so 
this sounds amazing. And so how long were you in this band? I think maybe only a year. Okay. And and, and part of the other part, attraction was there was a, a video that they had put together of just their gang hanging out oh. with set to like um, Santo and Johnny, like sleepwalking and then like a, a rudimentary Peni song. That's and, awesome. And so it was just them cruising around in this um, black 56 Chevy they had cruising around, you know, close to the border and just, just being like, it, it almost looked like, uh, like excerpts from repo man or something. Mm hmm. So I just remember seeing that and being like, this is basically a recruitment video. So where the fuck do I sign up? <laughs> they they accepted me, you know, and it was a it was an interesting world. You know, they, they carried guns. They picked fights with people. You know, we our biggest thing we did at night, apart from playing shows, was we would go race random people through the streets of El Paso up in up in the, the lower valley area in this 56 Chevy. And uh, later on, I write a song for. In, at the driving call Shafino, which was the name of the uh, the brothers, and I'm just basically describing a day uh, describing a day in the life of being in that band, and that was like our our thing that black '56 Chevy racing anybody in the middle of the night and fucking shit up. <laughs> That's awesome. So, how did they interact with your old band? Like, because your old band kind of had a uh, you know a tough reputation too. Was this like the bigger dog in the yard type thing? Well, they got no fight. We all played, we all ended up at some show, and I just remember walking outside and seeing both my bandmates, both bands fighting each other. Oh, shit. I was so fucking heartbroken. I had, I didn't know what to do. I ended up getting in the car with the Three Blind Bats people, and, you know, to this day, I apologize to my Phantasmagoria people about that moment. But, yeah, they, they got into a fight. It was really ugly. Yeah. I guess it's a small scene too for you know two tough bands to be interacting. There was moments where Ed Ivy would from Rhythm Pigs would try to organize big local band shows, and so I would show up with Three Blind Bats, and Ed is just trying to like get everyone to be positive, and he would say he would call people brother, and I remember he talked to one of us that way, and my band was just like, "Don't call us brother, we're not your friends," and I'm like, "Ah oh, shit, here it goes." Yeah, <laughs> that's what it was like. They were they were they liked to fight, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Was there any interaction between uh, the punk stuff that was happening in Juarez? No. No, I barely got people writing to me one year into being an at the drive-in from like deeper parts of Mexico trying mm -hmm. to be like, we're in, a, we're in this band and here's a comp of all our locals. And I could never get anything together to try to bring them even to El Paso. But now, or I should say maybe like um, late 90s, there was shows happening in Juarez and I don't even know the venues and stuff. Cause that to me is like territory. We didn't even go do, we didn't know how to, how to do that. Yeah. It's like, it's amazing to me. Cause like, you know, obviously I'm doing this from a geographical and temporal distance, but like, I love all that like late eighties into the early nineties stuff that was happening in Mexico, but it just feels like it was happening with such distance from what was happening in America, even when geographically it wasn't that far away. Like, yeah. obviously, Mexico City would have been really far away, but I mean, it's just, but I guess it was, it's that border. Yeah, we, it, that we were just separated by the border. We, we, um, we knew of this one legendary uh, punk rocker name, and we didn't know his name. He kind of looked like when 
Darth Vader takes his mask off in, in um, <laughs> Return of the Jedi, but full mohawk. And uh, yeah. I believe he's kind of like the first uh, experience I ever had meeting or seeing anyone transgender. And they, his name was uh, The Wrathchild. Okay. And he was, he was like the connecting person to get shows to happen, but we could never figure out how to take our equipment over. Yeah. And we could never figure out if they had the equipment to lend us to go do that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it just never happened. Um, so how did your time in three uh, blind bats kind of come to an end? Um, I, at that point I start taking a lot of uh, acid. Oh, yes. And I'm familiar I, with that drug. <laughs> and I start smoking a lot of pot at that point. And uh, I'm doing it with the drummer a lot. And then I just get to the point where I'm like, I don't like all this violence. And I, I want to start trying to do some other styles of music. And so we just sort of had a, a split and it's by telephone. Cause, and I'm like, you can keep my amps. Cause I think you're going to fucking, you're going to stab me if I go back and try to get my shit. So it's all good. And I just recently reconnected, which is why I could post those photos I just reconnected with um, the singer of that band because uh, I think in 2000, 2012, the drummer who I was telling you didn't know how to use the bass drum, he um, ended up killing himself, unfortunately. So, I'm sorry to hear that. And so now I'm reconnecting with uh, the singer Rob, and um, and and it, it, you know we're we're all we're both apologizing for what we were like. I don't know, <laughs> twenty years ago. <laughs> And I'm just like, you don't have to apologize. That's who we were. It's okay, you know, but we have these amazing stories and music and photos and videos left over. We have to do something with it. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, what a positive way to at least direct some of that energy into making music that could have been spent otherwise doing other things, I guess, like for some of the people in this band, you know, like they were making this thing that, you know, has resonance all these years later. Yeah, big time. (laughs) Uh, So what was that point like did you decide you wanted i guess you played drums next your next was foss next no next was this band called uh dragatones with a with a g d-r-e-g dragatones and it, at first we sound like like the jazz you hear on ren and stimpy episode <laughs> yes like it was like a conscious effort to really do something super uncool and play <laughs> punk shows and at the time at the time my hair is considerably longer and you know, I'm trying to hide the kink from my hair, so I'm constantly like straightening it, and I, I'm starting to take cues from like John Stab and wear like bell bottoms, and it's really to like annoy the the punks in the audience, you know. Which is what I always when I saw a government issue and I saw him wearing like corduroy, uh, ugly tartan pelt bell bottoms, I just thought I get it. He's just being a smartass. He's not like out there trying to be in the black crows. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, he's, he's, you know, and so I did that and then I did get serious about it. So the band <laughs> ends up turning into like a version of like mountain or, uh, early, uh, black crows and stuff like that. And it sort of divides a lot of people that used to be friends with us, <laughs> but we're, you know, we're out there, we're putting, we're putting cassettes out and we're playing these, these punk shows. We think we're punk in spirit, but we don't sound like that anymore. So who were the inspiration? Was it like Nation of Ulysses or is it even more kind of out there than that? Yeah, it's it's a lot of like like uh, like humble pie and shit like yeah. that. It's, it's basically me grabbing my dad's and anyone <laughs> else's dad's like um, A-tracks because my dad still has a functioning A-track player. Yeah. And we we play that stuff going, oh, okay, cool. You know, we're doing lots of acid at the time. And <laughs> we're starting, you know, the main thing I can always go back to is, is butthole surfers. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... That's that's happening at that time. And then 
as I'm playing drums with drag tones, I eventually start singing. We get different people in the band, and that's when um, my friend Arlo and Beto and Mike um, show up and say, do you want to play drums in our band? And we have a tour booked, and this is our plan. And I said, yes, absolutely, because I, I know those, I know them from other bands, and I know what great performers they are. And I know Beto from, I've just, you know, you can't miss Beto. He's almost seven foot tall. And I just always remember him from growing up. And I thought, yeah, cool. And then my first question is like, so how did you book the tour? And then they they show me the uh, the Bible, the MRR, <laughs> book your own fucking life. It yep. like, changes my whole world. And, and, and we set, uh, set our sights on just the West Coast tour. And we go up and down and we play. And um, it's... It just blew my mind, you know. I had I had no idea how to do any of that, how to cook camping style on the side of the road. We didn't even have a a, a band. We had a a, a little wagon, a station wagon. Every, yeah, station wagon, <laughs> and we just sort of uh, go play, and shows fall through, and and we just meet people along the way. And one of the people we meet was this band called the Ne'er Do Wells, and the Ne'er Do Wells have a drummer by the name of Al Sabrante, and um, they just meet us on the side of the street. Mm -hmm. we're, we're like in Arcata, California. And they're like, you guys look like a touring band. Need a place to stay and food to eat? We said, yes, thank you. They let us stay and their place is kind of like a makeshift place to to sleep and live and repair bicycles. So um, later we figure out Al was the first drummer of Green Day. Oh, and so, yeah. And so then we were like, holy shit, he's so nice. That's so cool, you know. And this is and Green Day hasn't even hit really big yet. Yeah. And, and so um, we we have yet to record our own music really yet. So after that tour, after meeting him, we end up calling his, his phone, uh, his, uh, his house phone. And he's got like a really funny like answering machine where he's saying random shit while the Green Beret song from the 60s is playing in the background. And we use it as an intro to our 7-inch that we finally do end up uh, recording. But, I mean, I, I learned so much from those guys on how to tour uh, do-it-yourself style. We even show up to a gig once, and, and the gig is billed as a sub-pop sort of showcase for Rain Sanction, American Music Club, and somebody else. So Rain Sanction, uh, R-E-I-G-N, is the, the hot shit for Sub Pop at the time. Somehow we figured out that they're not going to make it to the show. And I believe it's like Arlo and Beto who are like, okay, we're just going to call the club and we're going to tell them we're rain sanctioned and we're going to show up. <laughs> and sure enough, we do. And, um, you know, American Music Club, one of the people comes up to us and he's like, oh my God, Bruce and so-and-so say such great things about you. And we're like, yeah, of course. Cool. And then we get up and play and then everyone realizes we're not rain sanctioned. You know, we don't even have half the hair that rain sanction had. <laughs> and we play and I think everyone was so pissed off at us. But, you know, at the same time, some other people were like, that was that was cool. You guys pulled that off. That's awesome. <laughs> um, Just before uh, before diving in here, um, with that band before you're talking about how you're trying to piss off the local punks or just like, you know, mess with people's expectations. What was the dominant prevailing kind of wind that was blowing through punk rock in El Paso at the time? Well, the, um, everything shifted as far as who was throwing shows. Like Ed Ivey kind of moved on after a while, moved to San Francisco. And, uh, I mean, El Paso is really big. It's bigger than Austin. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a west side, and most of the people I know, we live on the west side. 
and there's some projects out in the west side but mostly the, the, the west side is kind of nicer mm-hmm. and then you have like the lower valley and you have downtown and um you have the northeast and so um the lower valley kids start coming up and they start booking their own house shows and it's really really inspiring it's a whole new younger generation that are pretty much like mrr kids pretty much like lookout record kids so they're bringing everything from like the crumbs and um los crudos and a bunch of other stuff that you know trench mouth a bunch of stuff that just you know kind of went under the radar and so that that's really cool to see them start doing that and so everything is pretty much like still old school hardcore punk which is why we were like oh okay let's try to change it up a little you know but um i mean i was i think i booked a show for my band dreg tones and no empathy once oh awesome from chicago uh, right yeah yeah and so i think Ben Weasel Don't Like This was yeah. like the big song they had. Yeah, they had a seven inch with the Scritch and Weasel guy getting a brick in the head. Yes, yes. So <laughs> at this time, um, in a weird sort of way, I'm sort of repping for all the West Side punks <laughs> and, and bringing the Lower Valley kids to our show, the common ground being no empathy. And so we book it at our, our local club called, um, oh, gosh, what was the name? Uh, I should know this. Anyways, the, the club did not get the memo about it be about it being all ages. And so instantly that's, that's like, that's 90% of the show. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So us, no empathy, another band from El Paso called VBF. Uh, we all say, you know, fuck it. And uh, we go find a garage. Someone don- donates their garage and we go take the entire show and we move it to this garage. And I think that was almost this defining moment of bringing everyone together in our punk scene. Mm-hmm. Because for the Lower Valley, the one band that really goes out and tours a lot is VBF. And so we become even closer with them. And so uh, sort of all our weirdo tendencies start creeping into what they're, they're doing. But a lot of those guys from the Valley were super Ramones heads. So, you know, all the Riverdale stuff was huge, which is like the stuff that I wasn't into at the time. But we found a, <laughs> we found a common ground and we made it work. And uh, I think they always... Saw, saw us as like being a Grateful Dead version of some punk thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, because you guys, Dreg Tones, you guys had a, a tape on the Western Breed company. Yes, was that your label or whose label was that? The basically the people that were in Foss. That was just like our made okay. make believe, uh, you know, logo and and uh, label. Pretty much, it was just like slap a slap a logo on all these self releases, really. It's, you guys put out a lot of records too, and it ran for like you know by any label standards for a few years, right? Yeah, it did, and it was just simply a an idea, really. <laughs> and I guess like what kind of bands was Foss playing with on that uh, on that tour? Like where did you guys kind of fit in scene wise at that time? Because like you know as you're saying, Los Crudos to No Empathy, like you know, and those are just two Chicago bands. There's like a wide range of of sounds that are coming out of American DIY at that time. Well, I think I was really technically only the person that was living in El Paso at the time. I think Beto was coming from going to school like in the East Coast. Uh, the singer Arlo was living in Albuquerque and our bass player, Mike, I can't remember where he was living, but they were all college kids. Mm-hmm. They kind of moved away. So we weren't even necessarily playing inside the scene. Our only shows were like the day we were leaving for tour and everyone was like, "Who? what band is this? <laughs> you know? And so then we would go and then we'd go up the coast 
And what we, what I found back then was everyone there was like the everyone was hung over from grunge and still playing it. Yeah, yeah. And you, a lot of bands looked like that, sounded like that. You know, were getting pedals that gave them that that sound that like the dwarves kind of had. You know, that that sort of like put duct tape over your pickup, and that's your tone. <laughs> everyone was sounding like that, and I was hoping to find like bands like the dwarves out there but i never saw that i just saw like the hung, the hangover of grunge really yeah oh it's like it's like this weird time before as you're saying like that kind of pre-green day exploding offspring kind of heralding like the the rise of the epifat scene like it's almost like the like the post grunge as you say hangover like where people yeah. are searching for what's next that yeah and, and i i didn't know anything about like galaxy 500 yeah, or even yeah. or even ulysses like that all comes from uh beto and arlo and, and mike being big discord heads and uh, having watched a lot of this stuff so all i brought to the mixtapes was like sid barrett or dub music that's what that's what my head was at so i was always like what what is this cupid car club and what is this nation ulysses like are they a band or are they like a terrorist organization? <laughs> and that instantly, instantly that got me right away. And like, then I got to see sort of firsthand once you get past like Spokane or I can't remember geographically where Spokane is uh, uh, in relation to Olympia. But by the time we got to Olympia, I kind of saw the, um, the after effects of what Ulysses was. And, um, we even stayed at this guy uh, Quiddy's house, and Quiddy at the time used to run Hessian Obsession, a, ma- a fanzine from there, mm-hmm. w- which was sort of like a, like almost like if they were the Melvins making fun of heavy music and and the culture behind all like heavy metal, but they were like punk kids. So I remember meeting those people and being like, oh okay. And then by the time we got to Canada, we were we played a band, we played a show with a band called Placebo. And, oh, uh, you, that's Feist's band. Exactly. So she had big dreadlocks at the time. And yeah. used to come to our shows and would come out on stage and sing with us and was such a cool supporter. And then, you know, I, I, I didn't ever see of her again or hear, think of her again until someone was like, you got to listen to Feist. And then <laughs> I put two and two together. I'm like, that's Leslie. Holy shit. Well, it's funny because, like, you know, it's it, once again, you, you talked about Trenchmouth earlier, obviously Fred Armisen coming out of that band. And, like, it's amazing how many people would come out of this scene where, like, you know, I, I'm not saying that Foss wasn't playing to huge crowds, but I can't imagine in Canada at the time, you know, there were massive audiences, yet there are two, you know, a few people that are going to go on to have massive cultural impacts coming out of those shows. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, we, we Especially, like, uh, Trenchmouth played – the lower valley before they came back. And by the time they came back, uh, they had set up the show through Jim and we opened up as at the drive-in for trench mouth. And instantly we became really good friends, which is why Damon started doing the covers for at the drive-in after that, because we just became friends and they were so cool. And for me, it was like, it goes back to Foss. Cause when I would look at the liner notes of um, the Ulysses records, I would go and find all the people they thanked because it would say, oh, the nation of Circus Lupus. Or <laughs> like they made it seem like there was a club that was in on the idea of what mm-hmm. Ulysses was and Trenchmouth was in there. So instantly I knew I'm like, we got to play with Trenchmouth. They're, so, they're somehow part of this shit, you know, and then they get out of their van. They're all dressed in black, but they, they, they but they look, they look like they've just like, they, they're in a cult or something. And uh, <laughs> we help them unload and, 
one of them gives me a, one of their their pins, their badges, and he's like, "You're in the army now," and that just always <laughs> floored me. Like, whoa, cool! I'm in the trench, my the army, you know. <laughs> Uh, I guess everyone kind of had that, you know, Ulysses kind of like this band is bigger than a band kind of kind of vibe going on at that point. I mean, in 1995, I don't know what band wasn't trying to be Nation of Ulysses. You know? yeah, <laughs> everywhere fun. we went, everywhere, like, OK, you guys are trying to be Ulysses. And I'd never even seen them. I didn't get to actually see footage of them until later with the invention of people you know uh, trading vhs tapes so mm-hmm. i i didn't know i you know it was like oh shit wait a minute jim why did you suggest we should all wear ties and suits? god damn it <laughs> you know so but like, like i can't like you know you think about like you know obviously the impact they had on bands like refuse but even like a band like turbo negro and like the whole turbo yugen thing like obviously i think there's a little bit of that nation of ulysses influence even creeping in there yeah i mean Ian was just way ahead of the fucking the curve. He really yeah. was, and and then to top it off, he's a funny and smart motherfucker. So, mm-hmm. but he's always had his pulse on, or his finger on the pulse of just true sort of weirdo rickety shit held together by duct tape. And because that that that's what blew me away about them was like by the time I wanted to to really go down the rabbit hole of his new bands, I realized he was flipping the script. And making everyone who played a certain instrument not play that instrument in the next band, which made it sound even more unique and made it not so uh, technically correct, really. You know, like like James Canty switching from being an amazing drummer uh, and then going to guitar. I could hear it. Mm-hmm. I could I could hear the limitations, but that's what they embraced, and that was really fucking cool. Yeah, he's always like one step ahead. It just seems like whenever he catches up to what he's doing, Ian's got like a new thing. That, that yeah. people aren't going to be ready for. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about that? I just because I there, I've seen this footage before. Foss playing on some like public access show, like a Christian public access show. Yeah, yeah. It was called um, "Let's Keep It Real." And there's a uh, years later, there's an at the drive-in one too. And um, yeah, we just we knew of this uh, public access TV show, and it was like uh, we we set it up so. That would be sort of our show before the tour started. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I remember the the host pulling us aside and being like, yeah, I want to start an all an all white Christian, uh, an all white Christian dude ranch. <laughs> oh, and so fuck. we kind we kind of knew he was like that already, but he cemented it by telling us that. And then we don't even go play our, our real songs. We just sort of made up a sort of dig at how conservative they were and you know he announces us and we take forever to start and there's like a couple of our friends in the audience but mostly the host's friends are there and you know <laughs> just being like just being assholes really to us and we're just taking the piss out of it really and and they and at the driving got to do the same thing a couple years later yeah a couple years later so like uh that first uh, era of at the drive-in that sounds really pop punk yeah. that's that's what played on on that show i have like red hair and i have like eyeliner and i have one dreadlock left over that's just like a darby crash kind of ducktail dreadlock <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah i think we're probably we're probably wearing like ties and and you know we look like mormons trying to or Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on your door. And that's a little bit of that Ulysses thing, but we haven't figured it out because Jim, his songwriting is primarily like pop stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. 
that's why it's always such an amazing sound that you got that at the driving kind of came to because it sounds like nothing else because it seems like it's almost a bunch of different styles of songwriting meeting in the middle that the way you describe that's perfect because we were obsessed with some of the west coast stuff that ends up being called pop punk or whatever probably like sam i am and shit like that yeah and um and and even for me like early early lemonheads songs are so undeniably rad like rad pop yeah absolutely and then we were obsessed with discord too so i always described it as like yeah we're obsessed with both sides both coasts but we live in texas (laughs) (laughs) um and also like you know i'm jumping it way ahead now because like you know i'm going into i'm not going to keep here all day i promise um and this has been amazing and i will at some day hopefully be able to impose upon you for a part two because yeah, sure. there's no a problem. million more questions. But one of the things that about at the driving that's always surprised me is that you guys always picked the most interesting labels. Like, I, <laughs> I guess it's because there's not really like a, a a fit that makes sense, maybe until Grand Royal, but like be it Fearless or One Foot Records or Flipside Records even, it's always <laughs> like the weirdest labels. Like how... Was it just like who would ask or where you guys felt comfortable? Like what went into those decisions? And I know that's a very broad question, but it's something I've always been fascinated by. I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question too, because um, with Tony, our drummer, and Paul, our bass player for At The Drive-In, they, they come from more metal background. Mm-hmm. So to them, when we, would do, when we did that four-month tour, they were just like blown away that people would come up to the merch table and if it didn't say Lookout or it didn't say discord they were just like fuck off which is which is why i i was like we got to sell mexican wrestling masks people are people are that fucking shallow you know walking walking into a a, rec, a record store in uh long beach to try to sell your seven inch to eat at taco bell and yet the riverdale's promo is you know ceiling to floor yeah, and the owner the owner tells me does it sound like the Riverdale's? Uh, that we don't want it. <laughs> yeah, like, damn. <laughs> you know, like what is going on here? And then you know the other thing is that all the shows are heavy, heavily populated by all these like twentieth generation ska bands as well. So um, my dream uh, was always like, God, what if what if evolution or what if kill rock stars, you know? So grand Royal is the closest thing to that, that happens, but nobody else was interested at all. And no one gave a fuck. And all the labels I, I liked and were super snooty. Once I, you get to know them and meet them, yeah. you realize it's a small knit family and you, you basically had to have grown up near or around them or know someone in that crew. Mm-hmm. So so for me, I was like, well, shit, I didn't, I didn't grow up with the heroin people. How could we ever get on fucking Gravity? And was Gravity even a real label? Most of the time, <laughs> it, it wasn't. It was just friends, just like Western Breed. And you find that out the hard way. And so uh, we get to a point where we're going to play Al's Bar, 1995. And um, the show gets canceled because the movie's going to get filmed there. So we get switched to another place called Bob Frolic Number 3. And um, the venue had a sequel, like Bob number three. I guess so. I guess so. (laughs) I didn't know anything. This is like my first time being in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so uh, we're not old enough to be inside the bar. None of us are 21. So we have to wait outside. And by the time we get to to play, it's it's uh, closing time. So the only people left over was every single writer from Flipside. Mm -hmm. And um, 
the drummer from Mud Honey, which I was really <laughs> excited about. And uh, they feel sorry for us. They're like, look at these fucking kids. They can't even grow a beard properly. <laughs> we're going to watch them. And then we, we play like like exactly what it is. Like We're like, fuck, man. Please just buy a shirt or something, you know? And, yeah. Uh, Blaze James Hurley is writing for Flipside. And he's also singing for a band called the TV TVs, I think, or TV TVs. I can't remember the name. And uh, he just continues to, like, correspond with us after that show and all the flip side pe- writers were just like oh my god that was that was a great show and where are you from and and then uh, one of the female writers his name is toast and she sang for a band called paper tulips and these are all flip side bands you know and as well as writers and so they just sort of give us our our first break and and it's through blaze james uh really caring about what he saw that night and wanting to to give us a break and that's how we get on flip side and every other time we want to try to go and find something a little more akin to what we listen to but all those tours were were opening in that period all those tours are like opening up for like afi or screw 32 or mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. a lot of that 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 style so we always stick out and it's really it's really difficult so people that are involved in fearless catch wind of us and are interested or um, Sean Stern was interested at one point or um, hopeless records, which is all still that kind of epitaph thing. Yeah. Yep. Fat records stuff. Even fat records at a time was, was uh, interested in signing us at one point, but was that know, before or after the flip side record after the flip side record? Cause even before that, like that, what's that label that did the, the second or the third record off time records, they put out like shyster and NRA from, Holland, like they put out really Doc Hopper, like they put out like a lot of cool progressive end of that kind of sound, you know. Right, like, that, that's Brian Jones. So Brian Jones is from El Paso, and he played in a shitload of bands that were super influential to me as a kid. And then he sort of leaves El Paso and joins uh, Horace Pinker. Oh yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So Horace Pinker's like a Phoenix band, but they're one of the few bands that I know of that are going to Europe. And so when uh, we set out for our big four-month-long tour, uh, we we only had the flip side record with us, and that's not the lineup that's on that record, and we don't sound like that record anymore. Yeah. And so we record an EP called um, El Gran Orgo, which is named after a character from a Jodorowsky movie, uh, Santa Sangre. And um, so we put that record out, Brian doesn't ever put the record out until after the tour is over <laughs> and still to this day owes us money for that <laughs> record on an indie label that never happens Ex- exactly <laughs> that was always our argument at the mortem like we've tried indie that shit sucks too <laughs> yeah. you know like like these people like music they're not accountants they're not yeah. good at this yeah. shit yeah <laughs> um no it's just funny because like you know also one foot records put out this band from, I believe they were supposed to be from Toronto, Canada. And I never saw them play called Funbox. Yet they had this CD that was available. And I remember buying the CD and just wondering where this mystery band actually was from. So I've always been kind of obsessed with One Foot Records. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, the, the, being on that label is what kind of got us our foot in the door to play like um, the Fireside in Chicago and yeah. jump on like, I, and I know they were pissed about this because uh, we jumped on a face-to-face show, and there was already like ten bands. 
somehow we we wormed our way on there and you know played for maybe ten minutes. And I and I just remember thinking like, well, fuck face to face, you know. And but now I know I'm like, this is their show, like you know, what the hell? I know, but it's just amazing how your perspective changes once you've been in the band and been in that situation. But you're right, like as as like a young band, like a a big band throwing any sort of roadblock in front of you, it's like fuck that band. Yeah, somehow your 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 uh, your fake socialism comes out, and you're like, we should all be in this together. It's exactly. like, nah. You know, you weren't there when they were working hard, so come on, man. But it's still a it's still a fun story. So because of like Brian Jones and all that, and Horace Pinker even having sort of uh, members that their home base was in El Paso and Chicago, they got our foot in the door to start playing Fireside, which was really cool. I think I first saw you guys would have been uh, around this. No, what it was before in Casino, um, and it was at the Gilman, and I think it was like you guys and Trial. And second coming, but once again, it was like I just can't imagine where you guys would have fit in sonically because you were such a, a, a different sounding band and like you know doing something completely new. Yeah, I mean, I thought I naively I thought like yeah we could be an evolution band, but then I remember like uh, we I, I was dating this girl Molly who used to be in Raul and she used mm-hmm. to be in the Tourettes, and so that whole crew is like intertwined with. Uh, the Yamos. Do you remember the Yamos? Yeah, I've got a seven inch. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so like the Yamos and the whole FYP thing, yeah. and sort of the more interesting to me, interesting side of what was happening in the Bay Area. Those people would watch us and be like, "Oh, I hear Sam, I am," and I hear this, and I'd be like, "Fuck!" I, I was hoping you'd hear more of the the weirdo gravity or whatever influence in us, but um, it all worked out. And those Gilman shows were super interesting and helpful uh, to the momentum we had with that. And to me, the most memorable one was uh, opening up for, it was, uh, it was Tilt, Carp, Young Pioneers, and uh, God damn it, I can't think of the other one. What a but, lineup already though. And, and, and so the, the whole thing was you have a meeting and the people who yeah. drove away from, or, or, or furthest away from the Bay Area can get to play closer to last, like a headliner thing. Yeah. And, um, so we we're just, we just take the bullet and we say, fuck it. We'll play first. We don't give a fuck. We'll play. And we play. And that's when, like, Sonny K from BSS and Angel Hair, he's doing, like, bottleneck distribution. And he watches us play. And what he told me was he never seen an opening band at a Gilman show pull people in the way we did. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we just played Gilman regularly, you know. I think we stopped playing Gilman because when we had our dub project called De Facto, we played there once. And I have a video of it. The guy named Marshall Stacks that played, um, I believe, in Blatz. He used to videotape every show. Mm-hmm. And, I, I know that name from like reading it in zines and stuff. Like he also, yeah, he had another band too afterwards. I think. Yeah. So he was always at Gilman, always videotaped us, and was cool with that. The drive-in, which we always thought was weird because Gilman had a certain thing they liked. You know, <laughs> it was like either like a, it was either Spit Boy or Los Crudos. That's really what I could expect. <laughs> yeah, drop which dead. Is, yeah. Yeah, which is totally it. cool. That shit yeah. rocks. That shit's great. Um, but uh, he videotaped us playing as de facto there, and we're we're playing with, like, uh, Artemis Pyle, maybe, or I can't remember, when 90 Day Men from Chicago, and Omar gets a full... I think that's the show I'm thinking of with Artemis Pyle. Okay, then that's probably an at the drive-in one, but... Um, that's what I meant, at the drive-in with Artemis Pyle, and I think it was Trial. Okay. 
And there's another band from El Paso on that show called okay. Short Hate Temper that played. Oh, yeah. Fucking incredible band. A power yeah. bouncy kind of band. Yeah. Exa- exactly. Yeah. Super, super cool people. Um, but when we played with DeFacto, that's the last time I played Gilman because someone that was like a Gilman regular decided to take a closed can of Coke and pelt it at Omar's head. Oh, and, fuck. And it's on video because Marshall Sachs recorded it. I still have it. I mean, I used to... When people would come over to our place in Long Beach, I'd be like, hey, you want to see Omar get hit in the head with a can of Coke? This is great. He got a little tired of that. But uh, that's what happened. We chased the guy outside of Gilman and, you know, all the kids that run Gilman were like, we're going to have a meeting about this. And I'm like, fuck you. You're going to have a meeting. Call the fucking cops. What the fuck? Like, don't be don't be a hippie about this right now. You know, like, come on. Like, we're, we have history with you. So. I've never set foot in Gilman ever since that. I remember that show. I Once again, it was like I had gone to the show. I think I'd been there to see Trial. And you guys I was familiar with, but, you know, I left that show and you were the band I remembered, right? Like, it was just, you were that band that I think, you know, you must have chuckled to yourself. Like, yeah, we'll play first. It's like, follow that. Like, we're going <laughs> to go out there and we're going to make it our show. And that that's the thing is, like, you don't fit anywhere. But yet again, you've got this energy where you can kind of fit everywhere with this band, like the sound and the energy that you guys are producing on stage. I was hoping we would uh, catch the ear of, um, I believe the drummer of spit boy. Cause she was always at those shows. Yeah. And I know she was, she's like a, she's a Latina and you know, not that you can decipher what I'm saying on, uh, on stage, let alone the lyrics. But at that time for in casino, I am dropping Spanish here and there. And I was kind of hoping like, see, we're out here too, you know. We need to be friends, <laughs> but it didn't happen. Never happens. You never, you never connect with the person you're trying to connect with. Is you connect with the person you connect with? Exactly. And you and some of our early connections in 1995, the entire section of the tour that At the Drive-In uh, was going to do that was booked that I booked was like the West Coast. And of course, all those shows, you know, fall through. So we're we're staying in the Bay Area for a week with nothing to do <laughs> and we're staying at this guy um oh, i can't remember it's not neurosis it's another n band that's around from that uh, I can't, can't remember okay but they let us stay at their house okay long story short uh schlong at the time was one of my favorite fucking bands and so reverend dave always comes regularly over to the house to uh just to party and, and drink beer and smoke weed. And then he says, you guys have been here for a week. And uh, we're, we're just nerding out because we're like, that motherfucker was an op. I <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I got a show for you to play. And we're like, this is great, you know. And so he gets us a house party. And that is the first time I think we really technically played the Bay Area. A small house party. And the people from Schlong are there. And the, the girls from Raul are there. And we sort of start making friends with all those people. It must have felt like, you know, and obviously your band goes on to have many, many more milestones, but that's that still feels like the first milestone when you're playing to like your punk heroes, you know, and they're and they're watching you as a peer. Yep, exactly. That's just a huge and big deal for me. Yeah. And at that time, the um, the Schlong record that's on Hopeless where they're doing West Side Story, like Punk Side Story. An incredible record, too. Like yeah. super underrated. Yeah. So that's the big one out at the time and so you know they're visible in the stores that to me is like (laughs) success you know to me if i can walk in and see your record there i'm like whoa that's cool (laughs) um i as i say i have kept you far too long already 
Cedric. But will you come back at some point in the future for a part two and then hopefully a part three? Because this has yeah. been too much fun, man. Thank you so much <laughs> for doing this. No problem. No problem. Anytime. Thank you, Cedric, for coming on the show. And you can hear right there, we got multiple parts in the future to come. So, uh, yeah, get ready for those. That was a lot of fun. Feist, Beto O'Rourke, and Cedric all in a club in, like, the middle of, like, I don't know, Edmonton, playing like 30 people probably. You know, what a what a confluence of worlds punk rock is. What an amazing confluence of space this thing can be and where all the people go in their lives, all the different places. So, I mean, we've got to get Feist on the show one day. I will... I will reach out. I will reach out to some mutual friends and try and make that happen because, you know, it's becoming pretty clear. There is a punk rock connection there with Feist. I'd heard someone say, no, there isn't, but I think there is. Anyway, that is in the future. Speaking of future and Canadian music icons, next week on the show, one of my favorite, one of my favorite, a man who has played in a band that I grew up loving, Super Friends plays in a band Tunes now. It's Tunes, 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 T-U-N-S. Uh, incredible band, like a Canadian super group featuring other Turned Out of Punk alumni in that as well. Matt Murphy is one of my favorite people. I've worked with him. I've hung out with him. And now, finally, I got to sit down and punish him about how he got into punk rock. That is next week on the show. It's a good one. It's a mighty, mighty fine one indeed. Anyway, everyone, thank you for listening. I'm going to go try and rest up and get this voice back of mine. Uh, go out there and make your own culture because anyone can do this shit. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to Vans. Thank you to Tristan. Thank you to you. Thank you to Cedric. God, I love doing a podcast sometimes, you know, like even though I'm sick, I can't, you know, like hearing about all these connections and, and the web, the punk web. That, that makes me feel better already. So anyway, thank you for listening. I will see you next week. <laughs>